preface to the King James Bible, 1611. They write, whatsoever things are necessary in the Bible are manifest. That means they're obvious. They're quoting St. Chrysostom. And they say, as St. Augustine says, in those things that are plainly set down in the scripture, all such matters are found that concern faith, hope, and charity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, preserving it for us so that we can know your thoughts, so that we can know the way of life and the way of salvation. And God, we thank you for its clarity. And we pray this morning, Father, that as we think about some complicated things, that you would give us clarity, that you would help us by your spirit. Please give us understanding, and please give us confidence uh, in your word. And I pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude as we think about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have covered a lot of ground over the last couple of months. We have talked about where our Bibles come from. Most recently, we've been talking about the history of the Bible. Uh, even over the last month, we talked about the history of the English Bible from Wycliffe, who was working by hand from the Latin Vulgate, to Tyndale, who was uh, working with the printed Greek text and then printed an English translation. And then we talked about all of those English translations that led up to the King James. And then we talked about all those translations that have been done in about the last 150 years or so. And that brings us kind of up to the modern day. We even mentioned a translation, the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a revision of the NASB that just came out this year uh, in English. Um, so over the next couple of weeks, what I want to talk about are the differences in our Bibles. If you pick up any two different translations or versions of an English Bible, uh, there will be differences in them. And that's what I want to talk about this week and next week. So why are our Bibles different? Uh, this is a question that can be troubling, and some will try to make it more troubling than it is. Um, but it's understandably something that we want to think about and consider. Whenever you see a difference between two English Bibles, there could be two basic reasons for the difference. First, it could be because of a difference in Hebrew or Greek manuscripts. Remember, a manuscript is a handwritten copy of the Bible, usually before the 1400s when the printing press was invented. And no two of those manuscripts are completely alike. So sometimes when you see a difference between two English Bibles, it's because the translators are looking at different Hebrew or Greek texts and making a choice about what they think is original. And we call that a manuscript difference. But there's a second reason that there could be a difference in our English Bibles, and that is because of a different translation choice by the English translators. Uh, if, if you speak more than one language, uh, you know that there's often more than one way to say something, even in English. Uh, sometimes English professors will have you say the same thing as many ways as possible in English, as an English assignment. Um, and so there's many different ways to say something when you're translating uh, from one language to another. That is the much more common reason for a difference in our English Bibles. Um, and we'll talk about those translation differences, Lord willing, next week, maybe in the week to follow, depending on how long this goes. Um, so those are the two basic reasons, though. It could be a difference in the manuscripts in the Hebrew or Greek, or it could be a difference in the translation choice that the translators are make of how do we say this in English. So this morning, though, we're going to think about that first category, though, of the manuscript differences. 
And why do we have manuscript differences? Well, this goes back to thing one and thing two, which we talked about a couple of months ago. Uh, thing one, right, is that we do not have the original manuscripts. Uh, we do have thousands of copies of them. We have over 5,000 copies of the Greek New Testament. So we have lots of copies of them, but we don't have the original one that came from the, the hand of Paul or John or Peter. We do have really old copies, though. We have really old copies that go back to the 100s or the 200s, right? So just a couple generations after they were originally written. And hard work has been done to catalog these more than 5,000 Greek copies of the New Testament. So there is no central authority, right, that has collected all of these and that has them all in one building or library. It's not like that. But uh, I have a Greek New Testament here. And in the front of this Greek New Testament is a list of hundreds and hundreds of Greek manuscripts that we have and where they are. We know hard work has been done to figure out where are these manuscripts. Uh, a lot of them are held in universities. Uh, some of them are held in private collections. Uh, some of them are at the Museum of the Bible in DC. Um, we know in large part where these documents are. They've been noted, we know they've had, they have names, we'll talk about this, uh, and we know where these things are. Um, we should realize that many of these manuscripts are not complete Bibles or even complete copies of the New Testament, right? So often, um, and there's lots of reasons for that, but, you know, often the Gospels were bound together. So, you know, sometimes we'll have a, a manuscript that has the four Gospels in it, or we'll have Paul's writings bound together, things like that. Quite often, what remains of these early manuscripts are just fragments, right, or pieces of paper. These things are like almost 2,000 years old. And over time, uh, they get destroyed. They, they deteriorate. Uh, and so sometimes we just have fragments of them. This is a document. This is one of the oldest that we have. It's called P52. I told you they have names. They don't have very creative names. Um, this is called P52. And this one is very, very old. So like I said, it's one of the oldest that we have. Uh, it's from the 100s. So this is just a couple generations after John wrote his gospel. This is a, this is a part of John's gospel. This is from John 18. Um, and many of the manuscripts are digitized. You can go online and find a lot of these, uh, like this one here. And there's even, uh, you can, uh, it's pretty small, but the second line on the right tells you where this document is. It's in Manchester in England in John Ryland's University Library. Uh, so if you wanted to know where P52 was, uh, if they'd let you look at it, which you, I don't know if they would let just anybody look at it, <laughs> but it's there. So we know where it is, we know what it says, and you can go online and see pictures of it. So that one's P52. Here's another one, uh, just to show you another old manuscript. This one is called Codex, which is just an old word for, for a book. Uh, and you can see it, it kind of looks like a book, right? Um, but a codex is written on vellum, that's like sheepskin. Um, this is called Codex Sinaiticus. This is from the 300s. Uh, also, this is very, very old. This is the oldest complete New Testament that we have. Uh, so the Codex Sinaiticus is the entire New Testament. Um, it's very old. We know where it is. You can go online and look at any part of it that you want. Um, 
which is awesome. We're going to look at a part of it uh, in more detail in a bit. So anyway, we don't have the original manuscripts, but we've got over 5,000 copies, and some of them are very, very old. Um, and then thing two, if we go back to thing one and thing two, thing two is that even though we have thousands of copies, no two of those manuscripts completely agree. But that does not mean that our copies are wildly different. They're not wildly different. If you listened to John 3, if you read John 3 across these manuscripts, you would recognize it's John 3. Um, these manuscripts, even though they differ, they usually differ in spelling or word order uh, or small changes. Um, we'll talk about some of those changes here in a bit. But we need to establish and just confirm up front that these differences between the texts, even though no two agree 100%, these are not wildly different changes in these manuscripts. Last week I mentioned um, that just this year, more Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. I don't know if you remember when I told that story, but some more Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered um, that date back to before the time of Christ. And they include part of Nahum, Nahum 1, 5, and 6. And uh, I put up there um, the Nahum 1, 5, and 6 from that newly discovered scroll and from the English Standard Version. And I won't take the time to read them, but if you just kind of glance through there, uh, you will notice that they are incredibly similar. Um, the article, though, <laughs> the article says this, says the authority, it's talking about the Israel authority that found this, this manuscript, said these words differ slightly from other Bible versions, shedding a rare light on how biblical text changed over time from its earlier form. Well, I think that's burying the lead. Um, these texts, when you read through the comparison, what strikes you is not how different they are, but how similar they are. They are almost exactly the same. And the differences that you see, I would venture to say, are translation differences, not differences in the original Hebrew. The difference between fury and anger is almost nothing. Those are just different ways of describing the same thing in English. I don't think that represents a different Hebrew word. I think that represents a different English word. Um, same, you could see the difference between wrath and indignation. I think those are the same Hebrew word and just different ways of saying it in English. So when an article uh, by the Associated Press says, oh, this new manuscript shows how text changed over time, I look at it and I say, that is incredibly similar. It's almost the exact same thing. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the, the text that we have is incredibly stable, even though there are slight changes. So why do our copies have differences? Uh, a New Testament scholar uh, who's trustworthy, his name is Peter Gurry, he's given two reasons. Humanly speaking, we have manuscript differences because copying is hard, right? So one uh, 15th century scribe, this is a picture uh, from the Museum of the Bible, from a scribe named Miriam, who says, let the reader not hold against me any faults that may be found, right? So the scribes, in the 1400s, right before the printing press. I don't know if poor Miriam knew that the printing press was coming. Um, but they knew that this was hard. And they were even asking their reader not to hold against them any faults that would be found in their copy. If you've ever copied scripture uh, at length, you know this is an issue. Or if you copy scripture into your Christmas cards, you probably know this is an issue. Um, that copying out scripture can be challenging. And as careful as they were, and as excellent as their work was, they were capable of making mistakes. So even acknowledging that they make mistakes, we also need to acknowledge they did a really good job. They did an excellent job. 
And that's where, when we look at the text, we can appreciate how well they did. But they were not perfect. Uh, and it's not hard to make a mistake. So Peter Gurry says that it's, it's not just hand-eye coordination, but some copying text. It's not just hand-eye coordination. It's something more like hand-eye, mind-finger, pen, ink, and parchment coordination. Um, and again, you've probably experienced this if you're ever copying something out by hand, which is becoming less common. Um, the, so that's kind of humanly speaking why we have these differences. Theologically speaking, we have manuscript differences because God inspired the originals. Right? We say this in our statement of faith. God inspired the original text, but he did not inspire the copying. God has preserved his word providentially. We affirm that. But that process evidently does not involve perfection, or else we would have to have exactly perfect copies. And we don't have any two copies that agree exactly. For a more detailed discussion of that kind of theological point, I'm happy to talk with you about that afterwards, or I would just refer you to that conversation. That's why we started the class with some theological things about our doctrine of Scripture and what we believe about the preservation of Scripture. Again, that should be available online, or I'm happy to get that to you. And again, that's why we affirm in our statement of faith that inspiration, inerrancy, and fallibility apply in an absolute sense to the original texts as written, and in a relative sense to all of the copies and translations that were made after. And again, we have a high degree of confidence that our Bibles do reflect what was originally written. It's not like we don't know. Uh, James White says that the number of meaningful New Testament variations is about 4,000. That represents 2.9% of the text, or one meaningful variant every three pages or so of the New Testament. But even here, meaningful must be defined. Many of these errors are resolved easily by reference to the common mistakes that scribes would make, and we'll talk about those, and I'll show them to you in just a second. So, Several scholars, if you read different scholars, I've seen numbers between 92, 94, and 98 percent of the text is fixed, stable. We know what it is. There's not a question about it, uh, which means you have about between 8 and 2 percent of the text, but depending on who you ask and how you count, uh, where there is some question, but even there, we can usually figure out what's going on. So, how do we resolve manuscript differences? Well, we attempt to resolve manuscript differences through a discipline called textual criticism. Now, at its best, textual criticism is the discipline of comparing text to determine what was originally written. And I say at its best because there are cynical ways to do this. Um, there are unbelievers who approach the biblical texts or other texts not from a Christian worldview, and those, they approach textual criticism, that discipline, cynically, right? It's kind of like how there's a, there, when you talk about the sciences, right? There is a way of looking at the evidence in the world and doing that from a non-Christian worldview, uh, and there's a way of doing that from a Christian worldview, and it's kind of similar with textual criticism. But the goal of textual criticism, and this is very, very important, the goal of textual criticism is to figure out what was originally written. We compare the text to figure out what was originally written. That's what we're after. We want to know what did God have written. Um, so one Christian scholar, F.H.A. Scrivener, who did work on the Texas Receptus, he put together in 1881 a version of the Texas Receptus, he said that the design of the science of textual criticism as applied to the Greek New Testament will now be readily understood, so he's now going to explain it, says, by collecting and comparing and weighing the variations of the text to which we have access, it aims at bringing back that text so far as may be to the condition in which it stood in the sacred autographs, at removing all spurious, that's doubtful, additions, if such be found in our present copies, at restoring 
whatsoever may have been lost or corrupted or accidentally changed in the lapse of 1,800 years. And then he says, those who believe the study of the scriptures to be like their duty and privilege will surely grudge no pains when called upon to separate the pure gold of God's word from the dross which has mingled with it through the accretions of so many centuries. So he says that, in other words, just to summarize, he's just saying that the goal of textual criticism is to compare all these documents that we have to have a more accurate picture of what was originally written. Dirk Jonkind, who um, has done more recent textual criticism work, he says, just as for certain purposes, we need images with as high a resolution as possible so that we can zoom in on the tiniest of details, so we want to have a text that is as accurate as possible. I find that illustration helpful, right? It's like the idea of looking at a picture, and um, I see some of the Hans, but I don't see, oh, there's Tim Han, right? So it's like, you know, when we look at space, when we look at our solar system, planets, stars, galaxies, we can say that we have truly seen them, right? You have probably seen Jupiter. You know, you have seen Venus, you have seen Mars. Sometimes you have seen those things with your naked eye. And you can say that you've truly seen Venus, Mars, Jupiter. You can look at a picture of it, even if it's grainy, and you can say, I have seen Jupiter. I have seen these planets. But we like to have more crisp, high-resolution photos, right? And I think that's a helpful illustration of what we're doing with textual criticism. We could say we have truly seen the text, but we want to have a, an even more clear picture of what we're looking at. It's kind of like um, I have a thing for, if I'm watching a movie, if there's a widescreen version, I like to make sure it's widescreen, right? If, if I've seen a version with the edges cut off, I can say I have truly seen that movie, but sometimes there's things that go on, not the main action, but sometimes there's little things that happen on the edges, and that can contribute to the whole. It's not necessary for saying you've seen the movie, but it, it gives you a more full picture of the film. And that's kind of, those are, I find those helpful illustrations for what we're doing in textual criticism. Um, now, this might sound like rocket science to you, um, but you intuitively do this kind of thing yourself. Um, you can probably tell when autocorrect has incorrectly fixed your text message and sent the wrong thing to somebody, right? You know when that's happened when you've sent that message, or you can tell when that's happened when you receive a message, and you're like, ah, that doesn't make sense. They probably didn't mean to use that word. Um, you can see this in plenty of written materials. Here are some examples of things that I have come across over the last several months. This top line here is from a book on textual criticism, in part. It says, this pocket guide answers difficult questions about the formation of the canon of scripture with clarity, precision, and a pastor's here. And you know, you know, you don't need someone to tell you that the author of that endorsement did not mean a pastor's here, right? As a native English speaker, you can recognize easily that that's not what they meant. You know, and, and not only do you know that's wrong, but you know what's right, don't you? You know that they mean a pastor's heart, okay? Um, on the back of a uh, tract that we give out here, there is a line that just gives some of the details of, of the tract. It says the cover design was done by Jordan Singer. Bible references, KVJ. And you know, you know that there is probably not a translation that is KVJ. Uh, it's possible that there's one out there that you don't know of or that I don't know of. But not only do you know that's probably not right, you know what is right. You know that it probably meant KJV. Uh, and a lot of things are a lot of textual criticism when we look at texts are, are kind of like that.
This happens not only with the Bible. I don't know how readable this is. I hope this is readable. It's readable for me, um, but I chose it. Um, this is a copy of John Newton's letters. So I have a book of John Newton's letter. You know John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, when people were putting his letters together, they made some notes about John Newton's letters. And so I want to, if you can't see it, I'm sorry, but the last three footnotes make some textual critical observations. Uh, it points out that um, John Newton says, as everybody in the line of my connections is in a manner overdone, they point out that in the original, uh, it was spelled, connections was spelled differently. It was spelled with an X instead of with a CT. Um, and then they note that the original has R instead of is, you know, so the, the people who put this book together say, ah, yeah, that grammar is not correct. Uh, and so they correct Newton's grammar there. And then there's another fascinating change that they, that they note, a textual critical note they have. Uh, in that last paragraph, Newton says, I often think of you, and I, and I think of you as burdened, but I know there is a mighty arm near to support you and to sanctify all your trials. He will do you good by them, both as a Christian and as a minister. There's a footnote by he that says that the published version in the, in the Baptist magazine says, the Lord, right? So... John Newton wrote this letter to John Ryland. And in John Newton's handwriting, John Newton said, he will do you good. John Ryland had this letter published in a magazine so that everybody could see it and be encouraged by it. And in the published version in the Baptist magazine, they changed he to the Lord, right? And they note that the Baptist magazine makes that change. Now, of course, does that change the meaning? No. John Newton meant the Lord. It's very clear that that's what he meant. And this is a fascinating kind of change, right? Because uh, this is a, this is exactly that right there, that changing a personal pronoun he to the Lord is exactly the kind of change that happens in the New Testament. That is not an uncommon change to happen. And unfortunately, some who look at that change say, that changing either he or the Lord is done with malevolent purposes. That when that happens in the Bible, people are doing that for bad reasons, one way or the other. We'll talk about that more later. I am going through all of this just to show you that, you know, you, we, we do this in other places. You can recognize it. You already do it yourself. Um, and this is the kind of stuff we do when we get to the New Testament. So, you know, when this is the picture from Deuteronomy and the King James, I'm not going to go through this all over again. We talked about this a few weeks ago where they repeat the same line twice. You know, that was an error that was corrected. This is my King James Bible where uh, in John 19, 23, it says, then the solitors, uh, when they had crucified Jesus, you know, you look at that and you know that's wrong. Uh, they meant soldiers. Um, and the D and the I are in the wrong place. They should be flipped. Um, and often these are the kind of spelling things that we see in uh, old texts. This is a copy of Codex Vaticanus, which is from the 300s, uh, near the start of Romans 4. Um, the original scribe of Codex Vaticanus accidentally wrote verses 4 and 5 twice uh, because of the repetition of words. And then a later scribe saw that and realized what had happened and um, didn't re-ink it. That's how they fixed it. So to try to explain this briefly, one of the ways that we've preserved old documents is that as the ink fades, a scribe will go through later and write over top of that old ink in fresh ink to kind of 
bold the text, to preserve the text. Well, when a later scribe was going through and saw that a line was repeated twice, they just didn't bold that text. And so you can see in that red square how it's faded out even further. Um, so we have those kinds of things. This is from Codex Sinaiticus from the 300s. This is John 3.16. Um, you can see in between the lines, there's a, uh, it's a preposition that gets added or a, a personal pronoun, his, his son. Originally, that was left out, and so somebody came back in and said, put his back in. Um, they also forgot the word um, he gave, and so in the margin, you can see a small little word below the red text. The red text is something else. I'll tell you about it later if you really want to know, but below that is the word he gave, and there's like three dots above it. This is really small. I don't know if you can see it, but there's like three dots above it, and then they put three dots in the text next to it where it belongs. And the way that probably happened also is you see those, the third line down on the right, you see the I-N-A. That's not an I-N-A. Those are Greek letters, but in, where it's, it looks like I-N-A, you see how that's darker, and right before that, it's fainter. What's probably happening here is that as they're inking their pen, they're running out of ink. And so he goes back to dip his pen, and he forgot the word edokin, or he gave, and uh, realized it later and went back and put it in. Anyway, I'm, I'm just showing you all this to show you that, like, we can look at these things and know what happened. This isn't rocket science. This isn't some great big mystery. Now, some of these things are hard, uh, and I'm not denying that, um, and I wouldn't pretend that this is all easy, but a lot of it is really obvious. Um, and some people will look through here and uh, pretend like it's... Um, like there are malevolent things or like you'd never really know and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I want you to kind of see what we're dealing with here. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody has had to do this. Uh, this isn't something that um, only uh, modern people have had to do all along the way, even for all the way back to times of Augustine or Origen back in the three and four hundreds. We've had differences of manuscripts and we've known about them and we've worked through them uh, in similar ways. Christian scholars use a variety of ways of working through these differences. So sometimes we look at how old the text is. Sometimes we look at where it was found. Sometimes we look at notes in the text like that. Um, <clears throat> the context of the passage itself can sometimes help us figure out what was originally uh, written or not. We'll talk about those kinds of things in a bit. Again, there's kind of spelling errors. There's influence from other similar passages. There's sometimes reading challenges, words that sound the same like potato and tomato things like that, that sound the same to the ear or that look the same to the eye, and sometimes copyists can mix that up. Um, scholars have a couple of large categories for manuscripts um, that you may have heard of, uh, which is why I want to talk about it just briefly. Um, and this has to do with, like, especially where they're from and how old they are and what kinds of changes they have in them. There's, there's kind of patterns of change that we can notice in text. And sometimes you might hear of this as majority and minority texts, or Byzantine and Alexandrian texts. So to oversimplify, majority and Byzantine texts are similar. And that, that refers to a group of texts from the eastern half of the Roman Empire that follow a particular pattern. And we have a lot of them, a majority of them, which is why they're called the majority texts. And the minority, or Alexandrian texts, as you may have guessed, refers to a group of texts from North Africa that follow a particular pattern, and there's not as many of them. The majority, or Byzantine texts, are older, or more recent. They're not as old as the Alexandrian or minority texts. The Alexandrian minority texts are much older by several hundred years. 
We can compare those manuscripts with other ancient translations, so translations into Latin or Syriac, things like that, Coptic. Um, and we also have quotations from ancient Christian writings, commentaries, sermons, letters, where they're quoting the Bible. That is also very common, and that also helps us figure out what's going on in those changes. Um, no one of these considerations, age, where it's from, these kinds of things, in itself can decide which reading is original. It's best to take all of these principles into consideration and take each difference on its own terms. And as I mentioned before, all translators face the challenge of textual criticism, including the King James translators, and they made notes about their decisions, as we'll see. Most manuscript differences in English Bibles will be found when comparing. So if you've got an English Bible, and if you notice this kind of difference, it's usually between a King James or a New King James, or I think a, the modern English version, I think is also, all of those are based kind of on the Byzantine or majority kind of text or the Texas Receptus. Um, and then more modern translations will use uh, a variety of texts, including those older Alexandrian or minority texts. Since the time that the King James was published, thousands of additional Greek texts were identified, and many of them were much older than the King James translators had available to them when they were doing their work. Um, today, the two most popular Greek New Testaments are published by the United Bible Society, which is in their fifth edition, and the Nestle Elan, which is in its 28th edition. A new edition was just put out by the Tyndale House at Cambridge. Um, these editions each take every manuscript difference that we know of on its own terms. They look at it and they say, what, what happened here? Uh, and then they make notes about it. All right, so I've been talking for a while. Now I'm gonna pause while I'll take a deep breath. If you have any questions, uh, happy to take them now. Next, we're gonna look at examples. So I wanna try to show you examples of some of these differences and how we work through them. But I'll pause in case you have any questions or thoughts. At the end of the class, I'll mention some resources if you wanna learn more. And I think I have some in the handout also. All right, let's look at some examples of differences that are due to differences in the manuscripts. Again, most differences in English Bibles are not because of a change in the Greek or the Hebrew, but are because of a different way that translators have chosen to say it in English. That's the vast majority of the differences. Some of them, a minority of those differences, are because of the Hebrew and Greek texts and differences there, and that's what we're talking about in these examples. So in this example, uh, we have Mark 9, 44, and 46, 48, and if you looked at those verses in the King James, verse 44 says, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Verse 46 says, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And verse 48 says, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. If you look in a modern translation like the ESV, verse 44 is footnoted, verse 46 is footnoted, and verse 48 says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And the footnote in the ESV says that some manuscripts add verses 44 and 46, which are identical with verse 48, right? So all manuscripts, all Greek manuscripts that we have, have verse 48, which says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So, you know, I, I don't think that this was an effort to cover anything up or to delete something. If it was, they missed verse 48. 
Um, something similar like this, where there's a, there's a phrase that just gets repeated over and over again, happens in different places. Pastor John pointed one out in Romans 8, 1 and 4. Uh, there's a phrase at the, in Romans 8, 4 that gets included in Romans 8, 1. Um, in uh, the King James, you'll notice that. Something also like that happens in Luke 17, 36. We mentioned that before, uh, where it says two men are harvesting in a field, one was taken and the other left. Um, and that's not in the oldest manuscripts. Um, so in a modern translation, that verse will be footnoted, uh, but it'll be there in the King James. The King James translators knew about that one. They knew that there was that difference, and they made a note in the margin that said this verse is wanting or lacking in some of the manuscripts. Um, and that verse, we know, is also in Matthew 24, 40, in the same kind of story, a parallel story. So what likely happened there and in these other instances is that the, the copyists are aware of a word or phrase or story from a parallel story, like in the Gospels, or this happens in Ephesians and Colossians because they're similar, and they'll say the, the phrase or the verse uh, because they're familiar with that other story. And sometimes it just happens, maybe, we, we don't know the exact reasons, but because of just human limitations. In Galatians 1.11, which you know Galatians 1 is especially about the gospel, um, that we have a Greek manuscript that, that says the gospel, the gospel, the gospel in Galatians 1.11, like one right after the other, just gospel, gospel, gospel. Um, and uh, most manuscripts don't have that, right? It's just once, it just says gospel once. So there's things like that. There's also, um, we just talked about Luke 17.36. We talked about 1 John 5.7 before. For the sake of time, I'm not going to mention it here other than to just say that this is one of the most kind of famous or infamous differences in text where we're, of all the variations, we're, this is the one that we're, if you could rank certainty, where we're almost positive that the wording that's in the King James choice is, is not what John originally wrote. We have almost no Greek manuscripts that have this in it. Um, this is very likely a commentary that was added in in the Latin Vulgate, and then, um, well, it, you could go listen to the story about Erasmus, because Erasmus knew it wasn't there, and some of his opponents um, produced a Greek text that had it, but it was very, very late. Um, that's skipping ahead. I'm going to hold on First John 5, 7 for a second. There are other passages um, that are longer, uh, like John 7, 53 through 8, 11, with the woman caught in adultery. Um, that's an interesting one, because this is one of the, again, one of the largest variations in Scripture um, where some manuscripts have it, some don't. The King James includes that story without comment. Most modern translations will have that in brackets, saying that the oldest manuscripts don't have this story. This one's interesting because, um, and the ESV footnote points this out, it says some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Others add the passage here or after John 736. Or we have some manuscripts that have it after John 2125. At the end of John's gospel, they'll put this story in. Or we have a manuscript that has this story after Luke 2138. It's in Luke's gospel in one of our manuscripts with little changes to the story there. So we, this is an interesting one because this story shows up, but it doesn't always show up here, and it doesn't always, it doesn't always show up at all. It doesn't always show up here. Sometimes it's at the end of John's gospel. Sometimes it's in Luke. Um, so then, you know, we have to figure out what happened. Why, why, why are those changes happening? My personal opinion is that the story is very old, um, but it's not consistently recorded or even consistently located in John's gospel. Early commentaries written about John's gospel don't talk about it. 
Um, so that gives us a clue that maybe the, the version of John's gospel they were looking at didn't have it. Um, in the end, I think it's probably a true story. I think it's probably a true story about Jesus. Um, I think it's an old story, and it doesn't contradict anything in Scripture. Uh, Christians seem to have an impulse to include it. Um, it seems unlikely to me that it was part of John's original gospel. Um, but again, I think it's a true story, and whether it's there or not, I don't think that it affects our understanding of Jesus. Um, and it doesn't contradict anything in Scripture. And it doesn't tell us something that other parts of Scripture don't tell us about Jesus. There are other things like that um, that we could talk about, but I want to try to talk about some other differences that we see. But in sum, I hope you can see from some of these brief examples that each manuscript difference needs to be considered on its own terms. It's not always as easy as saying, oh, that's the same old thing. Like, there's different things that happen with different changes. And I hope you can also see that these differences are not high stakes. We don't have a variation that says Jesus is dead, right? We, we, all of our texts, if you look at them, you'll know that this is Matthew, this is Mark, this is Luke. You'll, you'll, you can tell this is scripture, and it's not changing anything substantial or significant about uh, the stories about Jesus or about the New Testament. There are some cynical approaches to manuscript differences. Um, one, and I, I'll spend more or less time on some of these. One is that some people will say manuscripts are transmitted like a long game of telephone. Have you ever played telephone or whisper down the lane or something like that? You know, it's like you whisper something, like if I whispered something to Kathy, and then she whispered it to Barb, and she whispered it to Janae and Chuck, and on down the lane. And by the time you get all the way to the back to Esther and Barb, it's like it's changed wildly. That's not how textual transmission happened. Um, that's a bad example. Um, instead, it would be something more like if I wrote down something, and handed it to Will and Shirley, and then they copied it carefully, and they handed it back to Carol and Durwood, and then they copied it, handed it back, handed all the copies back, and then when you get back a ways to Mike and Susan, if, if they came up and checked uh, something that was written up here by Carol and Durwood, and so on, and then when you get all the way to the back, they could look at a bunch of those copies and compare them all. It's something a little more like that. Um, but anyway, the game of telephone is not a good example of how texts were transmitted to us. Another cynical approach to textual criticism is to say that because we have all these differences, you can never know what was originally written. Uh, that's a cynical way of looking at this. There was a Newsweek article published in 2014 that says, we've never even read a Bible, but at best, quote, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times. So that's one cynical approach to this. Um, Peter Gurry, who studies manuscripts, replies, in fact, most of us have been reading substantially the same Greek New Testament for 2,000 years thanks to careful scribes. And rather than being an impediment to faith, modern textual criticism actually supports it. Even Marcus Borg, who's a New Testament scholar who's far from being an evangelical Christian, he's not our theological friend at all, has written that with only a few minor exceptions, we can be confident that the Gospels and the New Testament as a whole reliably report what was originally written. Um, so the idea that we just have copies and copies that are all jumbled up and you don't have the Bible, that's not substantiated by the evidence. A third cynical approach, I talked about this earlier, so I'm not going to spend much time on it here, is that the original text was changed to preserve the power of the early church. Bart Ehrman, who's written popular level stuff on this, makes those kinds of claims, and they are not substantiated. Peter Williams, this book is in the bookstall. Peter Williams is a scholar at Tyndale House in Cambridge. He's written this book called Can We Trust the Gospels? Peter Williams is our friend. You could read this book. It addresses these kinds of concerns very, very well. Um, 
So if you're interested in that, it's a very helpful apologetic book. I have used this. I have given this to uh, an unbelieving friend, and we've read through it together uh, as a way to talk about the reliability and trustworthiness of Scripture. Number four, uh, we might have to pick this one up next week, because this one's uh, another cynical approach to the New Testament, or, or to these differences, that would say that the texts preferred in modern translations were changed to diminish true doctrine, or to support heresy. So this position would say that the older minority Alexandrian manuscripts are a perversion of scripture that dishonor God and promote heresies. One author says, among the changes in the new versions is the deliberate assault on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord and Christ are sometimes removed. The virgin birth is assailed. His identity as God is removed. Most people reading modern translations like the ESV never realize this venomous attack on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's another cynical approach to these differences. One of those that are given is from Luke chapter 2. King James says, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. The ESV, following a different Greek manuscript, says, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. That is a difference of Greek manuscripts. That is not a translation choice. The difference is between Joseph and father. One author says the ESV rendering here undermines the virgin birth and Christ's deity. Well, is that the case? Well, I don't think so, for lots of reasons. And one reason is, textually speaking, I think that's unlikely, since just eight verses later in Luke 2, 41, the King James and all other translations called Joseph and Mary Jesus' parents. So if calling Joseph Jesus' father undermines the virgin birth and deity of Jesus, then I think it would also follow that to call Joseph and Mary Jesus' parents would also undermine Jesus' virgin birth and divinity. Theologically, I also don't think uh, that's correct. Theologically, I think it's improper to refer to Joseph. Uh, I think it's not improper. In other words, I think it's fine to refer to Joseph as Jesus' father because adoption makes a real family. Um, father is not only a word reserved for biological relationships. Adoption makes a real family, as we will learn about in Romans 8, uh, in just a little bit. We call God our Father because he adopted us, and Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father. So for those two reasons, I, I don't think that holds. Another similar example would be in 1 John 4, 3. The King James reads, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Whereas the ESV or other modern translations would say, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So what, what is not included in modern translations, and this is a textual difference in the Greek text, is that phrase, Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Is come in the flesh is not included in modern translations like the ESV. One author says about this change, the Antichrist would delight in corrupting this verse, and the ESV grants his demonic wish by removing the keywords, is come in the flesh. Was well, that the case? Well, all modern translations and Greek texts say just one verse prior in 1 John 4, 2, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So if someone changed verse 3 for heretical reasons, they missed verse 2, which is the exact same thing um, in all of the Greek texts that we have and in all of the modern translations. 
So I don't think it's true, and I don't think it's honest to accuse modern translations of being under the influence of antichrist or demons to say that they've removed something which just one verse prior they include. It's also common for people to criticize modern translations for deleting things. And here is where I think I'm going to have to pause because there's other things to say um, about uh, textual criticism and we just really don't have time. But I do want to leave time. If you have any questions, we have a couple minutes uh, for any questions or thoughts that you might have and then we'll pick this back up next week. Yeah, Chuck. Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14. Yeah, I mentioned that a week or two ago. So we could talk about that again. There's an example in Colossians 1.14. Uh, in modern translations, it doesn't have the phrase, in his blood, forgiveness in his blood. Um, and some will make a similar accusation that they're diminishing Christ's sacrifice. Ephesians 1.7 is almost the identical verse. Uh, Colossians and Ephesians are very, very similar. And uh, so it's, I think what's likely has happened there is that when it's added in, it's probably because the scribe knew Ephesians and included in Colossians because it's almost the exact same wording. And Colossians, that's another example where later on in that chapter, just a few verses later, the phrase that we have reconciliation in his blood is there. Um, and so the accusation in general that modern translations are choosing Greek texts that diminish Christ's work isn't, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many people, substantiated by actually looking at the text. There is, there is no evidence that there has been an agenda or a conspiracy to, to eliminate uh, in his blood or Christ's divinity or things like that. Even in looking at the near context, these things are often affirmed, like 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, um, where the same truth is affirmed one verse after the other. But I'm familiar with that kind of argument. I'm not familiar with that tract or comment. Yeah, so yeah, some in short, uh, the short way that I would address that, yeah, is that some would accuse uh, Alexandrian or texts from North Africa of being written by heretics or of being written by unorthodox Christians. And there's two responses to that, um, to briefly put it. There were a lot of Orthodox Christians in North Africa, like Augustine or Athanasius, uh, who stood against known heretics. There were heretics all over the place. Um, and also, it, it makes sense... Um, historically, that we would have a majority of texts from the Byzantine part of the world, because in the Byzantine part of the world, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they were speaking Greek. They still speak Greek. Um, and they're using Greek texts. They still use Greek texts. Uh, so it makes sense that we'd have a lot of Greek texts there, whereas in North Africa, uh, they flipped over to Latin. You know, Augustine's church used Latin in the 400s in North Africa. 
Um, so Greek just wasn't spoken as long in North Africa. And also another historical reason is that uh, Muslim invaders destroyed a lot of North Africa. Churches, cities burned their libraries to the ground, and so we don't have a lot of those texts anymore, in part because they were destroyed. Yeah. All right, we got to stop. If you have any other questions or you want to talk, I'll be here all week um, and next week and the week after that. Um, so let me pray and um, we'll dismiss. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us to enjoy your word as we hear it preached, as we sing about it, as we hear it read. Uh, God, I pray that you'd fill our hearts with gratitude for all that you've done for us and for the word you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.